Well, good morning. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity where we can open your word. And Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things from your word, that your spirit would give us understanding, God, that we would um, be sanctified in your truth. God, as your word is proclaimed, um, Father, may it produce faith, seeing that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God, may it sanctify the saints and build up your people. God, we pray that you would guard us from distractions, that you would give us ears to hear. God, we pray that your word would be rightly divided, that it would lead to us praising and extolling you, giving glory to you, for you are worthy. O Lord, may Christ be magnified in the word preached. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We'll be in verses 1 to 12. Mark chapter 2, it will be in verses 1 to 12. Have you ever thought about the fact that what you do reflects who you are? You see, what we do reflects who we are. And it seems like many people believe that that is not true, especially when people get in trouble. You know, oftentimes when a famous athlete or a star gets caught in some sort of scandal or inappropriate behavior, you know, once it goes public, one of the first things they do is apologize. And one of the things they say in their apology is, that's not me. That's not who I am. When in actuality, it is you. It is who you are. You see, if it wasn't, then you wouldn't have done it. You see, what we do reflects who we are. In our passage this morning, we will see this truth on display as we will see what Jesus does reflects who Jesus is. So Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12 and it reads this, when he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything 
like this. And so our big idea this morning is this, that Jesus proves that he is God by demonstrating his authority to forgive sins. Jesus proves that he is God by demonstrating his authority to forgive sins. In our passage, we have three points. Our first point is Jesus forgives sins. Second, Jesus is opposed. And third, Jesus demonstrates his authority. And so we will see that Jesus forgives sin, Jesus is opposed, and Jesus demonstrates his authority. So our first point, Jesus forgives sin. Look at verse 1. It says, when he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And so Jesus, he has returned to Capernaum. Last thing we saw is that he was out in deserted places, but now he has returned to Capernaum. And he was there for a few days, and the news of his return has spread throughout the entire city. When it says that he was at home, it is likely that he and his disciples were at Peter and Andrew's crib, you know, where they were at in chapter 1, verse 29. In verse 2. It says, so many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the door. And so word spread and they all come to the crib. And the whole hood is there gathered to the point of a packed out house. Literally, a packed out house. You see, the house was so full that they would have broken fire code if there was one back then. You see, they're in, uh, they're in their tight and they're covering the door to the point to where no one was getting in and no one is getting out. Look at the next part of the verse. It says, and he was speaking the word to them. You see, Jesus, he was preaching to them. You see, he's not performing mighty acts or of healing or casting out demons, but rather he is preaching. He's preaching the gospel. And he was committed to preaching all throughout, um, yeah, all throughout his ministry and calling people to repent. You see, he had an unwavering commitment to preaching the gospel. And churches should reflect him in this, that we too should have an unwavering commitment to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the word preached is essential to our gathering. If John or myself or any other pastor or any other preacher in this pulpit is not preaching the gospel, then we have nothing of eternal significance to say. And we're saying nothing that is worth listening to or heeding. You see, if we're not preaching the gospel, then saints, NBC, you should fire us as your pastors. And so pray that we be committed to preaching the gospel. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, They came to him bringing a paralytic, carried by four of them, since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. Let's stop right there. And so four friends come to Jesus, and they are bringing with them a paralytic man as they carry him. And they must have heard about Jesus' preaching, casting out demons, and performing mighty acts, and believe that Jesus can heal their boy. And so what we see here is they have one mission, 
It is to get their boy to Jesus, believing that he has the authority to heal him. And so they make it to the house and the house is so jam packed that they're not bringing him in uh, to they're not bringing him through the door to bring him to Jesus. They're hindered from getting to Jesus by the crowd. And so the friends, they are forced to call an audible on the play. They must change their game plan. You see, they 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 made see their plan may change. But their mission is still the same. You see, they're committed to getting their boy to Jesus. And so what is the audible that they call? It says that they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. And so they brought their boy to Jesus by cutting through the roof. Well, it would mean it was mean that it'll be a mess. But the mission will be accomplished. It meant that it will be costly, but the mission will be accomplished. You see, they were able to do this because Palestinian roofs uh, back then is not the same as houses in America. Roofs on houses in America. You see, but houses back then, they were smaller and the roofs were flat. And they were supported by beams resting on the exterior of the wall. And they, they, had, they were able to get to the roof because they had access due to the fact that houses had outside staircases that would lead to the roof. And so they, they go to the roof, they, they rip off the roof, they dug through it and lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. And they did all of this while Jesus was preaching. But they got their boy to Jesus. You see, their mission was accomplished. And friends, as I meditated on this passage this week, I was struck by how dedicated they were to getting their friend to Jesus. Within two verses, we see that they came bringing a paralytic. And since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they got on the roof, cut through the roof, and lowered him that they may bring him to Jesus. You see, they were so committed to the mission of bringing their boy to Jesus because they believed that Jesus could heal their boy. They believed that Jesus was who their boy needed. And so they labored hard to get their boy to Jesus. Friends, are you this type of friend? On mission to getting your friends to Jesus. Are you this type of friend in your evangelism with non-Christians? You know, how aware are you that your non-Christian friends need Jesus? You see, these four men, they didn't let the crowd stop them from getting their boy to Jesus. They were willing to bring him to Jesus through ripping off the roof. Friends, when was the last time you ripped off a roof in order to get your friend to Jesus? Or not even just a friend, a family member, a co-worker, a neighbor. You know, are you this committed to bringing them to Jesus? Parents, are you this committed to bringing your children to Jesus? 
to where you are persistently having family worship and taking advantage of every opportunity to talk to your children about Jesus and hope that you would bring them to him. They will believe and be saved. Also, it's very important that we notice is that the paralytic was carried by four men. You see, this was a communal mission. They did it together. And we can learn something from their example and apply it to evangelism. You see, oftentimes we think of evangelism as this individualistic project where we do it alone instead of including the church. Where it would be much better if we connected our non-Christian friends and family members to members of the church and we evangelized together. You see, we can bring them, bring our friends, bring our family members to Jesus together. One way we can do this is through hospitality. You know, when the COVID crisis ends and we're able to begin to have people over in our homes, if you're already doing it, praise God, keep doing it. To which it's like, man, in our hospitality, we can invite our non-Christian friends and family members over. And simultaneously invite over members of the church and pray for friendships to develop, for spiritual conversations to be discussed as you have everyone over. And and be Christians in front of your non-Christian family and friends. Do not dim the light, but let it shine. And share the gospel in community And then together, invite your family members, your non-Christian family members and friends to service. You see, another way is, you know, if your non-Christian friend attends service, you know, tell the members of the church beforehand so that we can be intentional in our interactions. But then also after service, as you go to lunch, invite members of the church to join y'all and discuss the sermon together and other spiritual matters. You see, in these ways, We can be doing this together where we are trying to bring friends to Jesus together. Look at verse 5. It says, Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. You see, Jesus saw their faith by their actions. But one of the things that's interesting is that we don't see Jesus being upset about his sermon being interrupted. But we see him in being encouraged by their faith. You see, they trusted and believed that Jesus could heal their friend. Such conviction drove them to carry their paralyzed friend to Jesus. My friends, this is the first time in Mark's gospel that faith is mentioned. And here we see that faith is commended. And we see that all throughout the scriptures that faith is commended. You see, God is pleased by our work from faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So if we want to please God, then we must act in faith. We must believe him and believe in him and trust him and obey him in faith. But here we see in this verse that their faith gets Jesus' attention. And in response to their faith, Jesus forgives this man of his sins. 
Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. He speaks to him as if he knows this man's sins, as if the paralytic man has sinned against Jesus. And by saying and declaring that his sins are forgiven, what Jesus is doing is he is showing his identity. You see, he does what only God can do. He forgives him of his sins. As we talk about forgiveness, let's be good to define it. And so what is forgiveness? It is the removal of guilt and consequence of sin. You see, when God forgives his people, the guilt of our sins is removed, and so are the consequences. Where though we are guilty, we won't be condemned for eternity because we have rebelled against God. You see, God, he, when he forgives us, he shows us mercy. Though we deserve his wrath, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. He forgives us. Well, this is what Jesus is doing in the passage with the paralytic man. He says, your sins are forgiven. You see, forgiveness can, it can be illustrated as like, man, if I were to steal some J's from the mall, a pair of Jordans. You see, if I were to do such a crime, I've committed a crime. And I deserve to be punished for the crime that I committed. I am guilty. And let's say I get caught and the owner, um, he talks to me, sits me down. He could now, the owner, he could call the police and sue me and take me to court and have me pay a ton of money and maybe even try to get me and throw me in jail. He could do all of that because I am guilty and I deserve those very actions, repercussions. However, the owner, rather than forgiving me, he doesn't hold it against me. He releases me from the consequences of my actions. He says that I am not banned from the store and I don't have to go to court. He's not going to call the police. He's not going to have me pay the repercussions of my actions. And I return the J's and he's man, I won't bring it up again. I won't put your face on uh, in the mall in the store so that people can know that to, to be aware of you and, and to not let you in. See, he forgives me. And this is what Jesus is doing. He forgives this man of his transgressions. He, the guilt and the consequence of his transgressions have been removed. And look at verse 5 again. He, look how he forgives. He says, seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. He pronounces forgiveness in response to their faith. And so a question may come, whose faith? And does forgiveness actually work like that, where one can be forgiven of sins due to someone else's faith? Well, the whose faith is the four friends, those who brought the paralytic man to Jesus. And though it would be hard to believe that they carried the man there against his will, yet it says that Jesus forgave them, forgave him after seeing their faith. And this is not the first time where Jesus has done something to one person on behalf of another person's faith. You know, Mark chapter 5 with Jairus' daughter, when his daughter is pronounced dead, Jesus says, uh, do not doubt, but only believe. 
And then Jesus raised Tabitha, raised the little girl. But then also in Mark chapter 7 with uh, the Syrophoenician woman, the Gentile woman, where her daughter, something was going on with her daughter, and Jesus healed her daughter because of the mother's faith. So this is not the first time with something like that. Jesus heals on account of someone else's faith, but this is the only, this is unique, and this is the only time where forgiveness of sins, sins are forgiven due to the faith of others. You see, God doesn't forgive a person's sins because of another person's faith. That's not how it usually happens. That's not how it works. You see, to illustrate this, like, man, if Jake, because my son Jace, love him to death, but Jace will not be forgiven of his sins because God saw my faith. Or I had faith for Jace. You see, one is not saved on the faith of someone else. You know, one's sins are forgiven when they themselves believe. Acts chapter 3 verse 19 gets at this where the apostle Peter says, Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. He tells the people, you guys repent, you guys turn back, and the result is your sins may be wiped out. Not other people's sins, but your sins may be wiped out. So if we want our sins to be forgiven, then we must repent and believe in Jesus. If we want someone else's sins to be forgiven, then they must repent and believe in Jesus. Another thing that's interesting about this verse is that it seems like the four men are carrying uh, the paralytic in, in hopes that he would actually heal the man physically. But rather than healing the man physically... From his paralysis, Jesus healed him spiritually. He says that your sins are forgiven. And so why? What's happening here? Why is Jesus not necessarily healing him physically, but saying that his sins are forgiven? Well, what's happening is is that Jesus is meeting this man's greatest need. You see, his greatest problem wasn't being paralyzed and his greatest need wasn't necessarily being able to walk again, but rather his greatest problem is sin and his greatest need is forgiveness. You see, what's happened, what the four men are doing, uh, it's like going to get an oil change and the mechanic tells you that you have far greater problems than you need an oil, than an oil change, where he just gives you a list of things that needs to be completed where your brakes are terrible your engine is bad and just so many more things to where if these things don't get addressed your car won't run again you have deeper problems than an oil change what jesus is making known is that man you have deeper problems than your paralysis You see, his greatest problem wasn't being paralyzed, it was his sin. And his greatest need wasn't being healed from paralysis, but being forgiven. And like him, our greatest problem isn't COVID-19. Our greatest problem is not our children or our need for a spouse or employment or political parties or our economy. But rather, our greatest problem is sin. And our greatest need is forgiveness of sins. You see, if Jesus only healed the man from paralysis, then he'd be able to walk, but he'd walk right into hell. 
experiencing the wrath of God for sin because he has rebelled against a holy and righteous God. You see, friends, forgiveness is what we need the most. Because like the paralytic man, we have rebelled against God. And God is determined that the just penalty for sin is condemnation, his holy and righteous wrath. And we cannot work our way out of it. But we need forgiveness. We see that God is merciful. And if you know yourself to not be a Christian, I am glad you are listening to this. Um, Like us, your greatest need is forgiveness of sins. You see, your greatest problem, I mean, your greatest problem is sin. Your greatest need is forgiveness of sins. It's not like you need a better job or someone to fix your spouse, but you need forgiveness. See, you've transgressed against God's law. You loved other things over the supreme one who is worthy of our devotion, our love, our obedience and honor. You see, you are guilty of sin. And scripture says that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. He will judge and condemn sinners. He, but also he makes known that, and we see it in the passage, that God is merciful to offer forgiveness. And so I'd encourage you to turn from your sin, turn from your rebellion, and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. For then and then only will you be forgiven of sins. It is through faith in him. And as we see, Jesus forgives the paralytic paralytic man of his sins. And as he does this, he reveals who he is. He testifies that he is God because only God has authority to forgive sins. And this is exactly what Jesus did in the passage. The question is, is he crazy? Is he nuts? Is he doing something that's off the wall? See, as in the words of C.S. Lewis, he's either the Lord, a lunatic, or a liar. But here we see that Jesus believes himself to be the Lord. And that's exactly who he is. And we will see that all the more clear as we walk through this, this passage. And so we've seen Jesus forgive sins, and now we will see Jesus is opposed. Look at verse 6. It says, But some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so here we see who was in the audience as Jesus preached the scribes. And we see multiple of them, not just one. And the scribes, they were experts of the law. We're unsure if they were in the synagogue when Jesus was preaching in chapter 1. However, we know that they've heard about him and that they're in the house listening to him. And they were sitting in the house and they heard Jesus teach and declare that this man's sins are forgiven. And look how they respond. It says they were questioning in their hearts. You see, they opposed Jesus. Now, this opposition wasn't verbal and explicit, but one of that, that was happening internal. You see, they were thinking these things. 
They didn't say it to one another or huddle up or say it to Jesus, but they were, it was going on in their mind. And Mark makes it abundantly clear as he says that they were questioning in their hearts. You see, there's controversy in this passage where the scribes, they are appalled that Jesus would make such a declaration. They are indignant by such claim to forgive sins. And what we see in this passage, which we want to see within from this passage all the way to chapter 3, verse 6, is that we're going to see a ton of conflict, a ton of controversy where the religious leaders are, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, they are opposing Jesus, questioning Jesus. It's going to continue, starts here and is going to continue throughout his earthly ministry. It will end in the scribes and the Pharisees inciting the crowd to shout for Jesus' crucifixion. Verse 7. What we see is they ask two questions and they make a conclusion. Question number one, why does he speak like this? Conclusion, he's blaspheming. Question number two, who can forgive sins but God alone? And so they say, why does he speak like this? Why did he declare that this man's sins have been forgiven? Who is he to do such thing? They believe that he has no right or authority to make such a declaration. You see, in their minds, Jesus is just a man, which is why they conclude that he is blaspheming. You see, blasphemy... They believe Jesus to be blaspheming because Jesus is presuming authority to himself that strictly and exclusively belongs to God. You see, it is an insult to the majesty of God. And blasphemy, it is an atrocious sin. You see, God has declared in in Luke chapter 24 and in Numbers chapter 15 that the consequence of blasphemy is death by stoning. And they understood what Jesus was doing when he declared that this man's sins are forgiven. You see, they understood that Jesus was declaring himself to have equal authority to God because only God can forgive sins. That's why they asked the second question, who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, only God has authority to forgive sins. No mere man or human, I mean, no mere man or angel can forgive sins, but only God. Scripture makes that abundantly clear. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, where it says, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Psalm chapter 103, verse 3, it says, The Lord, he forgives all your iniquity. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, where we read in our uh, scriptural assurance of pardon, where it says that I am the one. I sweep away your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sins no more. Micah chapter 7, verse 18, it says, Who is a God like you, forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. You see, only God can forgive sins. 
And this is why when we do our scriptural assurance of pardon, we don't pronounce forgiveness of sins by our own authority. You see, in our liturgy, it says scriptural assurance of pardon. You see, this assurance of pardon is not from us, nor is it of our own word, but it is from God to his people, those who believe in Jesus. It is from his word because only he can forgive sins. You see, the scribes are right that only God can forgive sins. However, they are wrong in opposing Jesus and in concluding that he is blaspheming. You see, he is the Son of God. And their error is about to be evident because he is about to prove to them his authority to forgive sins. So let's look at our third point where Jesus demonstrates his authority. Look at verse 8. It says, Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? And so immediately, Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. It doesn't say that he assumed or, or wandered or that he made a good guess, but he knew exactly what all of them were thinking. You see, their thoughts were not hidden from the Lord Jesus. And to make it even more clear, it's not like they were huddled up and Jesus was eavesdropping. The text makes it abundantly clear that the thoughts, that they were thinking these thoughts in their mind. It says they questioned in their hearts. It says they were thinking like this within themselves. And they thought these things in their hearts. And yet, what we see in verse 8 is that Jesus knows. He knows what is within man. This also provides evidence to who Jesus is. You see, we cannot know the thoughts of man. We can speculate. We can assume, we can wander, but we cannot know for certain. Only God knows the thoughts of man. And here we see Jesus knowing exactly what they're thinking. As if if it's on the flat screen TV with high definition and Jesus just seeing all of it. It is clear he knows what they are thinking. And what we see in John chapter 2 gets at the very same thing. In John chapter 2, verse 24, 25, where it says, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, Jesus knew what they were thinking. He knew that they thought that he was blaspheming. He knows that they are questioning him in their hearts. See, the interesting thing is that they have questions about Jesus. Well, what we see is that Jesus have a couple questions for them. You see, they question Jesus internally. Well, Jesus is about to question them publicly. Look at verses 8 and 9 where he says, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. And so he questions them, which is easier to say. 
And from a human perspective, it is much easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, than to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. And one may wonder, well, how is that? And the reason is, how would one verify that they actually forgave this person's sins, that this paralytic man's sins are actually forgiven? You know, what would be the evidence? You see, there wouldn't be any evidence that his sins are forgiven. However, you tell this paralytic to get up, take your mat, and walk, but it doesn't happen, you will be outed as a fraud. And so it is much easier to say to the paralytic, but it's also impossible for man to do either. You see, man cannot forgive, man don't have authority to forgive sins, and man certainly don't have authority to cause a paralyzed man to walk. But the thing is, neither is impossible for God. You see, God can say that one's sins are forgiven, and God can say to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and walk. You see, God has the authority to do both, to forgive sin and to heal. And that's exactly what Jesus is about to demonstrate. Look at verse 10. It says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. You see, Jesus wants them to know. He wants them to be for certain, to not have a shadow of a doubt, that he is the Son of Man who has authority on earth to forgive sins. And one of the things that we see in verse 10 is that Jesus self-identifies as the Son of Man. And friends, it is the most common way that he refers to himself. You see, he refers to himself as the Son of Man 14 times in Mark's Gospel. And that phrase is picked up from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. It was part of this morning's scriptural reading, where in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, the Son of Man is a, a person with transcendent dignity. You see, he approached the Ancient of Days. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and he has an everlasting kingdom. You see, the very things that are attributed to God is spoken of in regards to the Son of Man. And Jesus declares himself to be the one who Daniel prophesied about. Jesus is declaring himself to be the son of man. And he says that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. You see, the very authority that God has in heaven, Jesus declares that he presently have on earth. And Jesus is about to prove to them that he has the authority to forgive sins by demonstrating his authority to physically heal the paralytic. You see, if Jesus heals the paralytic, he would demonstrate that the paralytic's sins have actually been forgiven. And so he tells him to get up, take his mat, and go home, and look what happens in verse 12. Immediately, he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. You see, in an instant, right after Jesus tells the man to get up, the man is healed physically. The man is no longer paralyzed. He was carried on a mat, but now he is walking out. He gets up, grabs the mat, and leaves in front of everyone. 
Such, such healing authenticates his authority to forgive sins and it reveals Jesus' identity. You see, they are forced to see that this man's sins have been forgiven by Jesus, drawing the conclusion that Jesus is God. You see, in our passage, there are two mighty acts that happened. The paralytics, his sins were forgiven, and he is no longer paralyzed. He is walking. And such acts, it demonstrates the nearness of God's kingdom. You see, the paralytic, what he is doing is he is participating in the joy of the coming salvation. Where in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6 says that then the lame will leap like a deer. And here we see the man who was once paralyzed walking. You see, this mighty act proves that Jesus wasn't blaspheming, but that he is God in the flesh. It reveals his identity. As Lewis, C.S. Lewis stated, he's either Lord, lunatic, or a liar. Well, he just proved that he is the Lord. And look at verse 12. Look at the response. It says, as a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And so the people, they were blown away by what just happened. They were awestruck. And we're praising God because they've never seen anything like it. But notice what didn't happen. You see, notice that they didn't turn to Jesus seeking forgiveness of sins. You see, he just proved that he has authority to forgive sins. And like the paralytic, they too need forgiveness of sins. You see, they were amazed, but there was no repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's one of the saddest things about this passage. That Jesus demonstrated that he is God in the flesh. And they didn't respond with repentance and trust in him. They praised God but didn't plead for God to be merciful to them and forgive their sins. And that's one of the saddest things about the city of Capernaum. Is that they heard Jesus preaching, they saw his mighty acts, and yet there wasn't much repentance in the city. And one may wonder, how do I know that there wasn't much repentance? Well, Matthew chapter 11, in verses 20 to 24, Jesus is denouncing cities where he did most of his miracles because they didn't repent. And in verse 23 and 24, he says this, And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. You see, the city of Capernaum, they saw the mighty deeds. They heard the greatest preacher to ever walk this earth, God himself, preach. And the city didn't repent. See, I fear that that would be what happened for many people in the Bible Belt and all over. You see, in the South particularly, there's a culture of people coming to service. And it's just what you do, religiosity, 
Bible Belt cultural Christianity where people come to service, love the sermons, love the songs, love the baptisms, but there is no repentance and trust in Jesus. They're just going through the motions and doing it because it's the right thing to do, but not seeing their need for forgiveness and salvation through trusting in Jesus Christ. And oh, friends, if that is you, I'd implore you to repent and believe in Jesus. Do not harden your heart. You see, may what was said of Capernaum, may it not be said of you. Turn and trust in Jesus. You see, in our passage, the Lord Jesus, he healed the paralytic and he evidences it. Uh, he heals the paralytic. He evidences that he has the authority to forgive sins by healing him. And, and though Jesus has forgiven this man of his sins, there is still a dilemma that must be resolved. You see, Jesus, he pronounced forgiveness of sins. However, in the Old Testament, in order for sins to be forgiven, atonement must be made. You see, God is holy and just, and he just can't forgive sin without sacrifice. And the book of Leviticus demonstrates that forgiveness of sins was extended after a sacrifice for sins. But then also, to even add to the dilemma, in the Old Testament, a high priest would make the sacrifice to atone for sins. And so the question is, how can Jesus forgive sins without a priest making the sacrifice and without a sacrifice being made? Well, Jesus himself resolves the dilemma. You see, on the cross, Jesus shed his very blood to atone for the sins of his people. You see, Jesus, he is the fulfillment of the high priest's role. The high priest's office who offers sacrifices and intercedes on behalf of the people. In fact, scripture says that Jesus is a great high priest. But Jesus also is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. You see, he is the sacrifice. His blood will be shed on Calvary on that cross to atone for the sins of his people. You see, on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God for the sins of his people. Scripture declares that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Well, Jesus shed his blood that we may have forgiveness. And he died and three days later, he resurrected from the grave. And when we trust in him, our sins are completely forgiven. We are saved. You see, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. NBC, This is the Lord Jesus. He has the authority to forgive sins, and we were forgiven when we believed in him. And the blood that has cleansed us from our sins when we trust in Christ is the very same blood that continues to cleanse us when we confess our sins and repent. You see, as in the words of the lyrics that there is a fount, It says, Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. See, the blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse us from our sin now as we confess them to him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the sufficiency of your son's sacrifice. That he can die for our sins and that our sins be atoned for and we be completely forgiven through faith in him. 
Father, we praise you that your Son has authority to forgive sins. Oh God, when we sin, may we draw near to the Son. May we draw near to you. May we confess that we may be cleansed. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.